to the third episode of A Life Through Books. Today, I'm here with the author, Helen Phillips. Helen is the author of six books, including the novel The Need, which was named a New York Times notable book and longlisted for the National Book Award. Her short story collection, Some Possible Solutions, received the 2017 John Gardner Fiction Book Award, and her novel, The Beautiful Bureaucrat, was not only a New York Times notable book, but also a finalist for the Los Angeles Times Book Prize and the New York Public Library's Young Lions Award. This year, she released the collection, and yet they were happy, and she has another novel coming in August of 2024. However, I found Helen's writing through her children's book, Here Where the Sunbeams Are Green. My introduction to Helen's writing was quite a few years ago when we actually ended up on a camping trip together through a mutual friend. I was very much in a creative writing era at the time, and I remember how excited I was to find out that I was on a trip with a real life author. When we returned home, I immediately ordered here where the sunbeams are green and essentially didn't put it down for the two days it took me to read it. So with that being said, I'm super excited to be speaking to you today. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I am honored to be here and here where the sunbeams are green is actually my second book out of six and my only one for young readers. So I'm very happy that as a young reader, you found it. So thank you. So we'll get straight into the first question. We're going back in time and thinking about the first book that you remember from your childhood. So the first book that I remember having a really strong reaction to I probably encountered when I was five or six, and it is a children's book by Oscar Wilde. It's called The Nightingale and the Rose, and there's a beautiful illustrated edition of it with watercolors, and it's about, and there are going to be some spoilers here, but it's about a um, rose who takes pity on a lovelorn student, and all he needs supposedly in order to get this girl to like him is a perfect rose. So the nightingale gives up her life so that the rose can um, grow. She puts her breast on the rose and the rose grows. And then there's a perfect rose outside the student's door so he can take it to his love. But this, the girl he's in love with is rich and snobby and she throws the rose in the gutter. And I lost it when I was five years old and my parents read me this story. We were supposed to go to a dinner party that night. And I was like, how can I go to a dinner party? I have just heard the saddest tale of someone giving up all of their lifeblood for no reason. So that really struck me. And I feel like even now it's such a foundational reading experience and, Mm -hmm. and a message of what fiction can do to put you in such an emotionally fragile place. Yeah, I was gonna say, I thought it was a pretty intense book for a kid when you first said it. I was like, wow, that's a pretty powerful book. Do you know the story? Yeah, I haven't read it in a while. But once I looked it up, I was like, I remember this. It's not exactly a children's book. But even though it made me cry, I cite it as my favorite children's book. Yeah, one that left an impact. Yes. What is the first book that you remember studying in school? The first book that I remember studying in school and having a really powerful reaction to was A Hundred Years of Solitude by Gabriel Garcia Marquez, which I read in a seminar in high school. And for that book, it was just the feeling of, I have never read anything like this before. I had no reference points for it. And I found it so exciting and so dynamic. And this feeling of, 
anything can happen and the laws of gravity are a bit off and just a, a profound playfulness with with setting and with situation. And it, I just felt like it gave permission of what a novel could be that I had never contemplated mm-hmm. before. What is a book that you studied in high school or college? In this part of the episode, Helen is talking about collected short stories by Jorge Luis Borges. Spanish is a lot weaker than I thought it was mm-hmm. because these stories don't make sense to me. And yeah. then I came to understand that my Spanish was fine. It's just that they are very mind-bending stories. So when yeah. I would think that I was misunderstanding the language, in fact, Borges was just messing with me intentionally. <laughs> and I have loved his work ever since. Yeah, that would be a hard one for learning a language for yes. the first time. What is a book that you read at a formative time in your life? So there's several books that I read at a formative time in my life that really stand out to me. When I was 11 years old, I lost all of my hair due to the autoimmune condition alopecia. And so that was a very challenging time in my life. I felt very ugly. I felt very lonely. And one thing that really helped me during that time was reading poetry. And so when I was 11, I started reading a lot of Emily Dickinson, a lot of E. Cummings, a lot of Pablo Neruda. Those are the three that I think of mainly. And then when I was 13, I made a promise to myself to every day read a published poem by one of those writers and every day also write a poem. And I kept up with that tradition between the ages of 13 and 21. So I wrote eight years worth of bad teenage poetry, but I read a lot of poetry during that time. And those writers, each of them in their own way, just helped me find sort of delight and beauty and rhythm in a time when I felt very unattractive to the world. Yeah, there's something really comforting about poetry. I've never written poetry passionately in school. But I remember, especially when I moved as a kid, being seven or eight and being like, I'm so upset about this that I'm just going to sit down and write a poem about it. Just putting all the words on a page and having whatever rhythm and there's no limits on it. Yes. And I think even compared to fiction, it has even another layer of liberation. And I think that when I felt trapped in certain ways by this medical condition that I had no control over. There was a freedom that came from that. And then also you read poems, you read Emily Dickinson, and you realize, oh, some of these feelings that I have, well, someone else had them too. Yeah. And also was trying to find a way to capture them. Yeah. There's a sense of relatability in it. Yes, absolutely. What is a book that you credit for shaping your way of thinking, your style of writing, or just your general outlook on life? I feel like the most important book for me in recent memory that I first read as an adult is a book by the Argentine writer Samantha Schweblin, and it's called Fever Dream. And I read it while I was working on my novel, The Need, that came out in 2019. And it's such an intense book about the power of wanting to protect your children and the impossibility of protecting your children in a world where there's climate change and other dangers that are out of your control. And so I just feel like she allowed herself to go to a very dark, intense place with that, that I think a lot of people are scared of. And and so I think it's a terrifying book, but in a really cathartic way. Sort of saying what everyone's thinking, but not wanting to say out. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. If you have children, which you've just mentioned that you have. Yeah, I do. I do have some of those. <laughs> I would love to hear about your favorite books that you've read to or with your children. 
So there are so many, you know, from Goodnight Moon onwards. But two that stand out from recent times are I have an 11-year-old daughter who I no longer get to read to because she can read on her own and has for a long time. But my eight-year-old son, though he can read, he still likes to be read to. So we recently read from the mixed-up files of Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler by E.L. Koningsberg, which I loved as a child. And it's about kids going and sleeping in the Metropolitan Museum. And then he and I went to the Met and we tried to kind of track their course through the museum. And so that was really fun. And then we've also been enjoying The Phantom Toll Booth by Norton Juster, which is, so we're right now reading it for the second time. He really likes to read books again and again. He likes to just basically memorize them, I guess. But The Phantom Toll Booth, I loved as a child, but it has a lot of jokes in it about the way English works. And so it's really a fun book in that way. It makes you reflect on language or language that's cliched that we take for granted and bringing new awareness to that. The Mixed Up Files is such a good book. Oh, did you read that? So good. I remember when my brother was finally old enough to read it. And I was like, this is so exciting. Let's go to the, let's run away to the Met together. (laughs) Yeah. What is the most recent book that you read or what are you currently reading? So at the, this exact moment, I'm reading a book by a writer I love. It's Sea of Tranquility by Emily St. John Mandel. I have also read a graphic novel by the New Yorker cartoonist Liana Fink called Passing for Human, which is sort of different iterations of her autobiography and her family's story um, and told in a visual way. I read a book that I'm excited about that's coming out next year called Florida Diary by Laura Vandenberg. I read Candy House by Jennifer Egan and it was a symphony of different perspectives and really exciting. And then I read Lone Women by Victor Laval, which is sort of a Western horror thriller, really exciting blend of genres. What did you think of Candy House? Because I remember how popular that was last year. If you've read Visits from the Goon Squad, it has similarities in terms of experimenting with form as you go along. So it's a really exciting book because you never know what's coming next. So it's very engaging in that way. Maybe I'll add it to my list. Yeah, I think you should. In this part of the podcast, we've returned to discussing the novel Lone Women by Victor Lavelle, which is centered around homesteading. What looks super interesting as well. The funny thing is that in England, the thing that they love to center on in American history is homesteading. Oh, (laughs) I don't know why they're so obsessed with it, but every stage of schooling that I've been through, there's always a unit on homesteading. And I could tell you when all the homestead acts are, I don't think anyone would know that. It's super random, but I was really surprised that they hadn't actually pushed more homesteading books on us. And I saw this and I was like, maybe I should read it. It is definitely a homesteading book, but not like anyone you've ever read before. So I, I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I'm, I will definitely, for, for school. Do you tend to read works written during a specific time period or set during a specific time period? I'm not really. I think that one thing I feel a responsibility to do because I am a contemporary writer and I teach um, young writers, college age and graduate writers, is just I feel like it's important to know what's being published at the moment. Yeah. So certainly I can love and very much enjoy reading Kafka or reading Octavia Butler or all sorts of people from the past. But I also feel like I, I do try to read things that are coming out right now that feel like they're speaking to this particular moment. Yeah. 
that's very important. What is a piece of writing that you think I should read? A book that I would recommend that I think I would have found exciting when I was your age is Invisible Cities by Italo Calvino, which is a series of stories that are these short descriptions of cities and they're very philosophical and very beautiful, but they have a lot of big ideas in them. And it's also about a young man, Marco Polo, going and exploring. And so I just think as a young person sort of looks out at the world or thinks about the world, that is a really beautiful book. Yeah, I think that's a great recommendation. I'm definitely at the stage where the world is suddenly seeming a lot bigger because there's so many places I could go next. And so I think that would be a really insightful thing to read. Yeah. And it would almost try to read that like a, like a book of poetry, like maybe read one a day. It's it's not like reading a novel. I guess maybe technically it's a novel, but it's really more of a experience it and sit with it and, and yeah. let it linger for a bit. What is a piece of writing that you think everyone should read? When you ask me that question, the thing that first springs to mind was Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. And thankfully, it's assigned so much in schools that many, many, many people do read it. But I just think the way it shows how a society can descend so swiftly into a dystopia and the way women's rights can be so easily compromised. And because she said nothing in the book doesn't come from reality. All of it has some grain and actual history or actual stories and the Bible. So I I think that that's one that's a good tale of warning. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with that. Have you watched the TV show? I actually haven't. Is it good? I haven't watched it either. (laughs) No, I haven't watched it. I I love the book so much. You know, sometimes I'm nervous to have my images replaced by, but I've heard the show is great. So I'm, I'm glad they did that. Yeah. What is a favorite book that a friend has recommended to you? A book that a friend recommended recently was a memoir called Fierce Attachments by Vivian Gornick. And my friend actually recommended both the book and listening to Gornick read the book because she read the audiobook herself. And I do think there's a special delight in hearing an author read their own book. I also would recommend Toni Morrison reading Beloved. She read the audiobook for Beloved, and it is absolutely an incredible experience to hear that incredible book in her voice with all of its richness and where it puts emphasis. And so that's another audiobook that I would recommend. But yes, my friend Maisie recommended the Gornick book, Fierce Attachments, which is about her childhood, her relationship with her mother. And it was riveting and just so intimate. So I really loved that. I looked it up and it looks really interesting. It's great for mother-daughter relationships and it's just, and also what it means to be a female artist or an artist at all and just ability to evoke the complexities of thought on the page. What is a favorite series that you've read? I don't read many series as an adult, but the one that I read most recently was the Neapolitan novels by the author known as Elena Ferrante and I actually listened to them all on audiobook, walking to and from work when my children were really young and I was working a lot and I didn't have a lot of time to read. And just being able to sink into those worlds that she was evoking, which were so much about women and being an artist and also doing housework. And they just were the, the perfect accompaniment to that stage in my life. It's about two best friends, right? Yes, that's right. And they kind of crisscross paths in different ways. Well, we're on to the final round. Okay, great. 
What is a go-to book that you give as a gift to friends? So the book that I have been thrilled to recommend to people for a while now, ever since I read it, is The School for Good Mothers by Jasmine Chan. An amazing book about the pressures that mothers feel and that maternal love and the intensity of it. And it's also a riveting page turner. So I love recommending that book. And President Obama also recommended it. So I'm not alone. Well, that's pretty high credibility. It is. I agree. (laughs) What is your go-to book that you gift when a baby is born? There is a book that was really important to me in my childhood. And I don't know how wide a circulation it got, but in my house, it got a lot of circulation. It's called Who Needs Donuts? And it's by Mark Allen Stamati. And the illustrations are incredible. They're these intricate, intricate drawings of New York City. And every page you could stare at for an hour, there are all these little characters. And it's just such a witty, funny, dark book. There's also one moment where there's a mountain of donuts. So that's fun too. So you've said you listen to audiobooks. What did you last listen to as an audiobook? So I have been listening to, although I'm still in the middle of it, Go Tell It on the Mountain by James Baldwin. And again, just when I am busy and don't have as much reading time, just putting on my headphones and being able to walk and hear someone tell a story like that is a good way to stay connected to that part of myself. Very immersive reading experience. Yes, it is. How many pages do you generally give a book if you don't like it? I mean, I always, I definitely have friends who say they'll just read to the end because that's the commitment they made. But I don't feel that way. I think that before I had children, maybe I would have. But now I think about 50 pages. I really do try to give people an opportunity and I try to be open to it. But at the same time, When I'm writing a book, I certainly am thinking, make sure that they care soon. Make sure that they care quickly. And I do think the writer has some responsibility to the reader to make them care quickly. (laughs) So I'd say 50 about. I think that's a very reasonable number. Do you think there's such a thing as a book that's too long? Well, I don't necessarily think there's such a thing as a book that's too long, but there's definitely such a thing as a book that's too long for me. I'm just daunted by a huge tome at this point. Maybe if it was the beginning of the summer and I knew I'd have many hours, but I admire and respect people who write huge books and who have written huge books in the past. But I definitely am a little less daunted if if it's a shorter book. Especially when they're a part of a series, because I think often some of the biggest books I see are part of a series and they'll be... These people have so many words inside of them. Yes, these writers have a lot to say. My kids are really into those, like Harry Potter and the Percy Jackson books. If you love a book, it's awesome that it's part of a series. For sure. Do you have a favorite movie that's based on a book? I would say a TV show. Okay. So I thought the TV show of Station Eleven by Emily St. John Mandel, who I mentioned earlier when I was talking about um, Sea of Tranquility, is magnificent. And I feel like I said with Handmaid's Tale, I'm always nervous to watch a movie of a book that I love. And I do love Station Eleven, but I heard good things about the TV show. And I felt like the TV show captured the spirit of the book while also expanding on the world. And so it was more of what I already loved and even a deepening of what I already loved. So that was pretty astonishing to have that experience. I've never seen an adaptation that I loved that much. How many episodes is it? I'm not sure, maybe eight to 10. 
So not a ton. No. And it's about the pandemic, right? It is. Yes. Yes. She was a little prophetic on that score. Okay. So she wrote it before. Yes. It published before the pandemic, quite some years before. Did yeah. you watch it before the pandemic? I feel like it came out during the pandemic. I can't remember, but I watched it during the some of the pandemic months, as I recall. Yeah. Because yeah. I remember watching some pandemic-themed movies or TV shows during the pandemic. And I actually think it was the worst thing I did because it just makes you so paranoid seeing it all on screen in front of you. Yes. It's, it's really overwhelming. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. I feel like people went either way with that. You know, some people were like, okay, let's turn to the trove of pandemic-oriented evocations that humanity has created, or let's just ignore those for a few years. So, <laughs> yes. I think I could only get back into it sometime soon. Yes. <laughs> You can give yourself another few months. Yeah, exactly. What is a poem or piece of writing that you would want to be read at a special occasion in your life? I don't know if it has been read, but a poem that I really love is very short. It's by Stephen Crane, and I'll recite it, but I might not get every word right. In the in the desert, I came up on a creature, naked, bestial, who, squatting in the sand, held his heart in his hands and ate of it. Is it bitter, friend? I asked. It is bitter, he replied, bitter, but I like it because it is bitter and because it is my heart. Wow. And I encountered that during that time when I was reading a poem a day. So I was an early teenager and it felt to me like a description of what it is to be an artist. Your heart has a bitterness to it or an intensity to it, and yet you're there eating it. So that's always resonated with me. Wow. Well, we've got to the end of our questions. So thank you so much for answering those. Of course. If listeners wanted to find out more about you or your books after listening to the episode, where could they find you? So I have a website, which is HelenCPhillips.com. And I am also on Twitter slash X. Amazing. Thank you so much. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Mm -hmm. 